0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Illustration Department podcast. My name is Giuseppe Castellano. In this podcast, I talk to folks in illustration, graphic design, publishing, animation, and other creative fields about their beginnings, their successes, and the bumps and bruises they've experienced along the way. In this episode, I talk to illustrator and graphic designer Steve Simpson. In 1995, Steve's portfolio displayed, quote, 30, 40, 50 styles. He looked at them and realized that none of them were his. Among other topics, Steve tells us how he transitioned from comics and animation to illustration and how he found his style in the process. We talk about the relationship between illustration and graphic design and the difference between influence and appropriation. And lastly, we chat about color families, not in the way you think. I hope you enjoy our conversation. How you doing? Doing good, doing good, and yourself? I'm not too bad. Are you in your studio right now?
1: I am uh, in the next room to my studio. Mm -hmm.
0: Is your studio in your home, or is this the one that's like, kind of off uh, a little bit of ways from your your house?
1: Uh, I'm actually between studios now, so my spare room is my studio. Uh, I moved flat there last year, and um, it was just going to be a longer commute, so mm-hmm. I tried it for a while, and then I thought, well, I get an extra hour in my studio if my studio is in my flat. Right. Um, so yeah. so far, it's been okay, but there was the danger of, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he, in a similar situation and he said that the, the guy in the corner shop became his best friend because he was the only guy that he saw on a regular basis <laughs> so there's a danger when when that happens mm. i know that um yeah you know, it's it's time to find a studio and get out and actually talk to people every day
0: right so is that what you're going to be doing at some point
1: i think so um yeah i I've, I've always found it beneficial to be in a in a studio or uh, you know an office that has other creatives mm. uh in there um, my last studio um it started off with creatives and then they kind of moved out and non-creatives creatives moved in and it, it, it kind of lost the vibe it had and it was really just yeah it, it, it wasn't serving the purpose so right. um I, yeah i think i just need to be around um and I think creatives have a different sense of humor than other people, so, (laughs) Uh, but just also just to ask, you know, especially when you've you've got questions about something you're working on, it's always nice to ask a fellow creative what Mm -hmm.
0: they think. Um, So uh, we have a lot to talk about, and um, I want to start off, I usually like starting off with something a little simple. So what was it like growing up in Manchester in the 1970s?
1: Um, I actually come from a town about 20 miles away from Manchester. It's situated probably the same distance to Liverpool as it is to Manchester. So it's it's right in the middle. However, they, I, I always say Manchester because it's kind of easier for people to understand. And yeah. The last place I lived was Manchester before I came to Ireland in 1990. I mean, it wasn't that small of a town. You know, it's I'm probably the same as any kid. You think it's the centre of the world you know, before you start travelling and looking around. But I think I think the 70s was a great time to grow up. You know, I, think, um, I certainly had a lot more freedom than my kids had growing up. You know, so we were very close to a park. So you know, we'd be in the park all day and just come home when we needed feeding. Because um, I, I talked to my mum recently about this and. You know, you, you know how your you, your memory memory can be quite sketchy.
0: Right.
1: Well, I always tell people that I was drawing all the time as a kid, and you know that's that's how I remember it. Um, was that really true? And she said, "Well, if it was raining, yeah." She said, "If um, if it was sunny, then you're out climbing trees and playing football." And mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think if there was a job climbing trees, then I'd probably have done that before I did before I became an artist. You know?
0: Um, was your, yeah. was your household a, uh, a Manchester or a Liverpool football? Household? Liverpool. Yeah.
1: Very much Liverpool. Yeah. Still is. Yeah. So, um, it's one of the passions that I don't talk about very often. I don't see the connection between illustration and football. You know, I talk about music. So that's, that's a big passion of mine, but, mm-hmm. um, I, I've never really seen the connection. Um, but it's, yeah, I'm going to watch Liverpool later tonight. So we're having a great season. Uh, we're undefeated in the league after 23 matches. So
0: why did uh, you we say could that win. Out, you shouldn't have said that out loud. You know, they're going to lose. Tonight. No,
1: no, but yeah, we're starting to feel confident 30 years of, of not winning the title. So we're, we're going 19 points clear if we went tonight. So we're feeling confident at this stage, but it's taken us a while. Only in the last couple of matches to be able to say that. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully fingers crossed now it carries on.
0: Yeah. You know, um, I, a couple years ago, I wrote a blog post about how illustration is connected to baseball and how those two very much Ah. are kind of go hand in hand a little bit when you're thinking about the things you have to do as a baseball player and things you have to do as an illustrator. And one of those, one of the connections um, that I was trying to make was that in baseball, sometimes when you're up at bat, you know, obviously everyone wants to hit a home run, um, but not every at bat is a home run, and sometimes a, you get on base just with a bunt single or a you know, the weakest mm-hmm. little hit can, can get you on base and can get you in a position to score the winning run. Sometimes you do hit a home run, but most of the time, about 70% of the time you fail. You fail at your job. Ooh. And that's if you're a Hall of Famer, you know. 300 Ooh. batting average is a Hall of Fame batting average. So it's more than that even. 75, 80% of the time you're not you're not achieving the goal that you're trying to achieve. And as an illustrator it's a little bit like that, you know. Not every piece is going to be uh framed and hung on a museum wall. Um some pieces don't need to be, you know.
1: Yeah. No, so that's, that's yeah, you know, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. it. Doesn't matter how successful you get, you know, not not every piece. I, I think you see you know, the the biggest difference, obviously, is that as an illustrator, you're working for clients and ultimately marketing people. In many cases, especially in, in my work, um, and. You know, sometimes what you want to do is not exactly what they want or exactly what they need, mm-hmm. and so even though you might have great aspirations for the piece you're creating, sometimes it needs to be simpler or it needs to get a, a different message across. Or, and quite often, it can come out with something that I suppose isn't what you envisaged when you first took the job on, mm-hmm. but. The client is very happy with it. You know, it actually ticks all the boxes for the marketing people and it does the job, but it doesn't blow anyone away, you know. So, and I think when you start every illustration, that's what you want to do, but I guess it's not always
0: possible. Right. I guess one connection you could make to, I'm saying football out of respect, um, <laughs> but I guess one connection you could make is that you know it's ninety minutes of grueling effort. And sometimes the score is one to nothing. Sometimes it's no, there is no score. Um, And even that could be a positive. It's like, well, we tied and that'll get us a few points. Um, Yeah. uh, Yeah. You work really, really hard for a very long time. And it isn't again, going to be a 10 to nothing route. It could very well just be one, one to nothing. And your effort could very well have just been, well, it wasn't for me. I could, you know, like as a defender, you did your job, so you didn't score the goal, but you opposed the other team from scoring their goal. So it's I don't know. It's it can, I can
1: give me yeah, some time. I, give me
0: some time. I'll try and make a connection.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think I've got a better one. So uh, what people see is the 90 minutes. But actually, it's, you know, it's the five days training beforehand that goes into making that 90 minutes. So that 90 minutes is the exhibition showpiece of it, of all the work that they put together you know, in that week leading up to it, all the analysis and, you know, working on set pieces and everything. And I suppose you can work that into illustration. so you quite often don't see all the, you know, the the drawing that goes on beforehand, the thinking that goes on beforehand, um, you know, the process. And I always think that, you know, there's as much work happening before you start working on that final piece you know, than there is actually going into that final piece. Yep. So maybe that's a good one. Maybe, that, good one maybe. Mm-hmm.
0: I'll get, I'll give you one more and then we'll move Go on. on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I guess we could talk about it uh, for the entire hour or whatever, but um, I'll give you one more. And that is a lot of times, like, especially the superstars, you know, it's like, you know, overnight successes, you know, it's like they came out of nowhere. Who, who is this person? But that person was working on their craft for 10 15 years before you even heard of who they were. So yeah. it's not like you don't just say, well, you know, I'm going to be a soccer player. And then you, you have to work at it and you have to, there's a lot going on to get to that point.
1: Yeah. I suppose so. And, and the money's the same, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
0: hundred thousand a week.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there the you top go.
0: Players. yeah. Yeah, That's about right. Exactly. I wish. Yeah. A hundred thousand frustrations a week is if you're going by that currency. Uh, so as far as okay well let's talk about you working up to where you currently are so you studied technical illustration yeah at a school what school was it
1: so the school was just a local school and you know it was just a 10 minutes walk from where I lived it was called um, the Mid Cheshire College uh, of Further Education um, so it was you know the first two years were spent there and When the course started, it was called Technical Graphics. And then midway through it, it changed to Technical Illustration. It it was the same thing. Um, And then I went went to Portsmouth College of Art, which later became Portsmouth University. Mm -hmm. And I started two more years that would have given me a degree. But I I never finished that because I started work instead. So, yeah, I, I don't know... It was a strange one, and because I didn't have that much in the way of um, qualifications on leaving school. They, they were, apart from maths, they were all kind of art-related subjects. Right. Um, and I'd done very well in sort of technical drawings, so I think I'd kind of been pushed into sort of the technical illustration side of things. Mm-hmm. It's a, It's a really interesting thing for me at the moment, actually, because I'm trying to you know, remember why I did it and how it influences what I do today. And for many, many, many years, I I, I dissed it on stage. You know, I was saying, you know, this is what I studied and God, I hated it. And <laughs> it was so annoying and perspective theory, mm-hmm. you know, two lessons a week for two years. And I can remember not enjoying it. And I, I remember not being the best in the class at it. You know, I was doing enough to get by and pass mm-hmm. my exams but you know there was so much theory involved and the reason i got into it was you know firstly there was during that period there was a lot of airbrush illustration around at the time there was lots of ladies with mirror sunglasses um, (laughs) with palm trees reflected in them you you probably remember them and Mm. uh Chrome cars, you know, so it's all this, you know, reflections and things like that. So that was hugely popular, and as as an art form, I think. And so I thought, well, yeah, I'd like to learn to airbrush. That looks really cool. And we, you know, you have to remember this is all pre digital, so um, it, you know, it was it was you know, manual, uh, sort of using an airbrush and that sort of thing. And yeah. also, I think the way it was sold to me was that you know, the the technical illustrator. Back in that period, so sort of leading up to the 80s, was probably the most um, commissioned illustrated. Mm-hmm. There was so much work around. You know, if we if we take put aside editorial and children's books, you know, all sort of advertisements, whether it was um, a cereal box or a car or a can of oil, they they were all illustrated. They were re illustrated because. Mm-hmm. I, Wow, I'm not the, the printing process wasn't as you know that great for you know reproducing photographs. It was much better to do illustrations. It was
0: probably cheaper too for the yeah like, advertising firms, the magazines. Yeah, know.
1: so absolutely everything was uh, illustrated, um, and so it was kind of almost guaranteed work. You know, if you finish this, um, but there was also this very technical side to it as well, which was. Um, you know the exploded views of car engines um which that was a bit i really didn't like Uh, you know where you had to you know every nut on the engine had to have the right amount of threads on it and the right highlights and the right shadow and and everything on it so it was incredibly technical for something that was done by hand and the only pieces of reference you had was a blueprint to work from Mm -hmm. so um was a huge amount of work so that that was probably the side i didn't like very much the reason i got into it was probably financial thinking yeah well i I can make money doing Mm -hmm. this and you know it's still kind of art Mm -hmm. Um, um but sort of going forward and how it um influenced what i do uh I think it's still there. I think, you know, within my work there is still this um you know, if if I'm drawing a wheel on something, then it will it'll be a wonky wheel, but it would work. You know, so you know, um it would have the, you know, be connected at the right place. Everything about it, the spokes and everything they would be correct but wonky. Right. <laughs> and maybe abbreviated, so it's you know I still have that need to make sure that you know when I'm drawing something I, I'm almost um, building it. Right. Um, so I, I think it still has an influence on the way I work today, and it's, it's I think it's very, very much a part of my style. Right. So but, I don't think anything's
0: wasted. Yeah, and I can see that it's like you're taking the subject and then just breaking it down into its elements and then reconfiguring it expressing mm. it I mean stylistically it's definitely different than um, comparing the two styles from what you're doing yeah. now to what you're doing then but um, yeah no I can certainly see their similarity similarities there for sure but you left you didn't finish that school Ooh. either and you got a job no. I got a job man. At, I was 19 uh, and it, is, it wasn't just any job you weren't you weren't a, a barista or anything you, you no. got a job at Cosgrove Hall, Cosgrove Hall Films Hall. Yeah, and I read that your first day you painted seconds worth of cells for the cartoon Danger Mouse. Yeah, what year was this? Eighty-seven. Uh, this
1: eighty-six. Uh, th- this was around eighty-five. I because I, I started college in eighty-two, so this was eighty-five. Okay, um, so I was nineteen, um, and yeah, it was amazing. I mean, you know, one of the funny stories was the, the first day some some kid had dropped an autograph book into reception and it got and he wanted autographs of everybody worked there and it got passed through the studios and I got to sign my signature in this kid's autograph book I thought wow this is incredible yeah it was a dream job and he, the, you know the reason for leaving uh, college leaving school uh, really was that you could see the computer was on its way Uh, You could see that um, AutoCAD uh, or CAD, um, computer-aided design or computer-aided drawing was Mm -hmm. coming along. And you could see that was going to replace. And you could also see the college gearing up to change their course Mm -hmm. to be more um, digital and computer. But we weren't getting that. So that we knew that if we'd finished that course, we'd probably be the last uh, year to study it. Sort right. of traditionally, right. and as such, it was you know, we, we were kind of redundant before we left. So it, it, I didn't see a future in finishing it, right. um, and then it was like I wasn't sure whether having a qualification would be useful for any of the jobs that I was hoping to do in the future. Right. So it, it seemed like an easy easy decision to take. I mean, one it was an amazing job. Yeah, it was, I'd you know, say it had, opportunities for me to learn more there uh within a, it was a small company, small-ish company it was big for an animation company so i think there were about 120 people working in there
0: they were based out of manchester right
1: yeah so they were so I mean, again it wasn't that far from home wow. as well so yeah.
0: what else did you do um, there
1: um there was another series called Docula. i don't know
0: mm-hmm.
1: if, if that made it to the states uh we worked on a feature film for the bfg role dolls um and then it was a lots of little series series that came along um that has been forgotten in time um but um yeah it was i think i spent six years working there and i was able to work you know i i was also using working the xerox machine and making tea that sort of (laughs) thing um so it, it really was a grounding at the very base level right and uh, yeah, it was a great place to work. It's you know getting those opportunities.
0: And then in 1990, you moved to Dublin and you worked for Fred Wolf Films, right? Yeah. And for people who aren't familiar with Fred Wolf Films, they were the animation studio that produced the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's correct. Right.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy, isn't it?
0: What were, you, what were you doing? And then, so that's why you moved to Dublin. But what were you doing? Were you an art director there?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, a bit, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, so the company, Cosgrove Hall, uh, was a part of Thames Television, the, um, based in London. And they lost their franchise. And so I, I think something 90% of the studio was let go but they gave us like a month to find new jobs. And uh, uh, they used to put new jobs on uh, the notice board. So people were looking for it. And there was somebody looking for a storyboard artist in Dublin and there's the phone number. So I, I rang them up and they asked me to come over for a couple of weeks initially just to do storyboards. And then I could take the storyboards back. So this was uh, a different company called, uh, this was called Animedia and working on a a film that never got off the ground um so the first three months i think i was working there then that job folded and i took some freelance work in fred wolf and that's when i was doing teenage mutant ninja turtles and i was doing storyboards on that and i think maybe it was a year or so later they brought me back in as the art director i art directed a couple of series um, one of them was Budgie the Little Helicopter, which was Fergie Prince Andrew's wife's little storybook. Uh, another series about Simbad the Sailor, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, so I think that I I spent another I spent a year employed because otherwise I'd been freelance.
0: At what point did you dip your toe in the freelance illustration world? From, what was yeah, that, that, what was that first that was, job? That was
1: probably at the end of that period. So that was probably maybe 94. I'd been freelancing as an animator and um, storyboard artist and various roles in that. Um, and then when I went freelance, I, I was doing um, flash animation and a few other things. Mm-hmm. I was sort of dipping my toes into illustration then, um, but also, I was also doing comics as well. And... I'd never met an illustrator back then. And I'd kind of fallen into this illustration role working with uh, a design studio that was in the same building that I had a studio in. Mm-hmm. And I remember my door was open and they walked past one day and I was w- working on a comic. And they said, oh, you're an illustrator. And I said, am I? <laughs> <laughs> and this, <laughs> they said, uh, oh, we must have a chat. And they'd started feeding me work, so um, yeah, I think my first illustration, purely thinking that I was an illustrator, was uh, a cat for a road safety campaign by one of the supermarkets over here. It was amazing because all I was doing was in my head it was I was just creating a still from an animation series right. Uh, but I was getting a lot more money for doing that one still as opposed to doing multiple drawings of it. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, from that very first moment, I thought, you know, this is ideal. This is perfect, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, sort of job satisfaction, you know. One of the issues I'd always had with animation was that you could stop one of the things you'd worked on at any particular point, any particular second, and you'd look at it, and you, and you could see there were maybe twenty people who worked on that one frame. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard to, you know, take credit for the final product. Um, you could take credit for the storyboards, but they were never seen. You know, you take credit for the character design, but somebody else would have redrawn them by the time they got on screen. But with illustration, you know, you were creating the whole thing in what you created was what was printed. Right. And so you, you physically had this piece of paper or a poster or whatever it was in your hand. And you could look at it and say, yeah, I did that. Yeah. And that was new to me. You know, I've never really felt that. Maybe a little bit in comics, but actually to see it in, in shop windows and that sort of thing was, was
0: fantastic. But you were familiar with illustration as an occupation because you you've noted that your uncle... John Gearing, I mean, he was a renowned cartoonist. Yeah. And so you grew up watching him create these really, like, fantastic, flamboyant illustrations that were beloved by a lot of people. Yeah, and, and
1: that was, seeing that at a very early age made me realize that there were jobs out there that... um weren't just you, know, you weren't working in a factory or an office. Right, you, you were actually drawing for a living.
0: He had a he had a, like a studio in his backyard or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: um, did you that, help him? Were you like an assistant when you were younger?
1: I, I was for a while. When I was fourteen, he took me on for the summer holidays, mm-hmm. and uh, I sat beside him, and he gave me a few little jobs. What did you do? Uh, my most important job was drawing the borders around his frames mm-hmm. using a rotoring pen. So he'd draw it first, you know, sketch it out. I'd draw the borders, uh, then he'd ink it. And the bits that were going to be solid black, he'd put a little X in. And my next job was to take a, a, a brush uh-huh. and fill in these little places with Xs. Nice. So, yeah, I, I was really good at that.
0: <laughs> uh, did you get any credit?
1: No, there wasn't. And he he actually rarely got a credit as well. So back then, it was like comic artists um oh yeah. in and, and those ones never got never got credits
0: unfortunately. There's this great story about your uncle that I read. Um so your aunt Barbara tells this story and it she says that basically she got she was responsible for um kickstarting his career cuz she went to the post office And bought every comic (laughs) that she could and then pulled the names of the comic publishers from those comics and sent them your uncle's work and from that your uncle met like one of them responded and your uncle met that person and they hit it off and your uncle's career started from there
1: that's true yeah and yeah actually yeah she did something very similar for me um so she was always very supportive of me. She'd always bring um, paper um, around. She'd always drop off comics that my uncle had, nice. and you know, there was always materials suddenly appearing right. as a kid. But when I was at college in Portsmouth, um, my uncle was actually working part time in Cosgrove Hall Films as the head of backgrounds, and so he knew when jobs were coming up. And um, my auntie would keep pestering him as to, you know, when is there anything going there? Is there anything going there? And every time he'd say yes, she used to apply for the jobs for me in my name. So I got an interview for a job I didn't even apply for because because she applied for it for me. Wow. And not only that, then she, she collected me. From my parents' house, and she had um, a brand new portfolio case with her uh, for me to put my work in. She drove me to the interview and sat in the car outside and drove me home afterwards. So yeah, she was a uh, huge, huge uh, supporter and influence. And yeah,
0: why do you think she yeah. did
1: that? Um, no, I don't know. I mean, she she was just a very passionate woman with those things, you That's know. Great. So if I think, you know, because I'd spent, you know, I was six when my uncle got his first trip, when my auntie did, you know, went to the post office to do all that. So I was at an age to understand, you know, comics, and you know it made as big of an impression on me then as perhaps it did on him getting it. You know, it was from a very early age. It was like, wow, you know, that's, that's what I want to do. And, you know, and I spent... You know the, the next ten years, drawing, trying to impress my uncle. You know, so we would meet uh, at a family gathering on a Saturday evening at my uh, my granny's house, and I would bring my sketches every week. You know, and it was like desperate to impress him. And she would have seen that. You know, she she would have seen that. You know, this was something I was really passionate about. Yeah.
0: What did What did he think about your work?
1: Ah, uh, well, he yeah he, uh, he encouraged me Mm um i mean looking back at that work now it was like a um i can i can see what he really saw um and you know it it was it showed promise Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but um i i think you know he encouraged me uh but i don't think he encouraged me as much as my auntie did right so
0: so starting off i read that you Faced a pretty big hurdle kind of early on you said that you initially had when you were putting your portfolio together you looked at it and To you it seemed like you had 30 40 or 50 Mm. different styles and that quote. None of them were yours What how did you work through that? Mm. And the reason I ask that is because this is a very common concern and Hurdle for a lot of different illustrators. Folks want to work uh, differently. They want to express themselves uh, in different directions, artistically and visually. And there's a lot of conflicting advice out there about you know you need one style, you need more than one style. You'll confuse art directors. You won't confuse art directors. For the record, I'm in the create art. However many different styles you want to create art, it doesn't. It won't confuse art directors if you keep it organized. Mm. But how did you? get through going from thinking you had 30 40 50 styles to to something that you felt like was a portfolio worth sending around. Firstly, you got to you have to understand why I have that many
1: styles. Um, there's a couple of reasons for it. I mean, firstly, it was maybe 5 years I was working in the industry before I met another illustrator. Um, I just I mean, this is, you know, pre-Google and Uh, you know pre-websites and we started it was when we started to get chat rooms Mm -hmm. Uh, that's when i started to be in contact with illustrators so i'd never had that conversation um you know obviously read books and that sort of thing uh but the reason i had so many styles was because i'd worked in comics and animation and you know if every six months working on working in an animation studio and you switch to an another, uh, TV series, then there was a new style. It was, you know, it was a new uh, model sheets to follow. And even in comics, it was a certain style that you had to do. I also worked with Disney for a while, sort of, sort of while I was doing the comics thing, sort of while I was still doing the animation thing and very much had to work in the Disney style. And so, I, I When I came into illustration, it was like I just started repeating these styles um, and I change it whenever it felt appropriate to me. Um, and sometimes you know, back then, if, if you were working with an art director and they liked working with you, you know you were efficient, you, you know you produced the work when you did it. Mm-hmm. Then there was one art director I remember, and I'd done something really cartoony for him. And I finished it before schedule, and he was really happy that you know he had extra time to play with it. And then the next day, he rang me back and asked me to do something very realistic. Can you do realistic? And I said, well, I think so. And so the next one would be realistic. <laughs> and so he, I thought this was the way illustrators worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly, yeah. And then suddenly, I was like, I, when I started putting all my work together uh, on a website, I kind of looked at it and I realized that. You know, Every it it looked like an agency as opposed to an illustrator's website. You know, it's like there were hardly a couple of styles um, the same. It was probably sort of ninety five, maybe before I even got myself organized on style. And what I'd been doing for the two years previous to that was experimenting with style. You know, I'd met other illustrators, and I, you know, I started researching into, you know. Other illustrators from the past, you know, mm-hmm. started looking at Jim Flora. I think Jim Flora was a really great example yeah. because, you know, what one of the things I'd always been taught to do was to draw characters with really good silhouettes. Yep. Uh, and, and that's a comic and an animation thing. And when I saw Jim Flora's work, I thought, oh, yeah, he's got really great silhouettes. You know, it's just like there's something that I find uh, I can relate to, yeah. you know, so there's something I can bring back from mine. And so I've been experimenting with so many different styles, trying to find that style where, um, you know, uh, clients would come to me and say, yeah, wow, that's it. That's, you know, we really love that style. You know, we're going to commission you. But it never works that way. You know, it's, you know, I was still getting loads of work for the cartoony stuff I was producing in Ireland. Um, so it seemed really, it was, the, the biggest decision for me was, do I give up on this lucrative cartoony stuff and you know try to find my own style or you know to just carry on with what i'm doing and you know continue to make a good living Mm -hmm. producing that and i thought no I, i what i really want to do is create a style where people look at it and they say that's steve simpson and i just wasn't sure how to do that um the little piece of information I got uh, that that changed everything for me was at one of the ICON conferences in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. That must have been around 95, 96 maybe. And I can't remember who said it, but somebody said, do what you love. That, that was their little piece of advice as far as style goes. And for them, it meant that you know, your style should be a mix of your influences and the things that you really like, you know, the things that you look at um, and I kind of went away from that and it, for me it felt like I was going to create this book. I had to create this bucket full of all the things I really liked and um, I'm sorry, my, my door buzzer's has just gone here <laughs> can, we, can we just hold that one for yeah, a second? Yeah, yeah, definitely hey, um, I, I, I was expecting someone to come a bit later and second, sorry, did a stamp for the post office here, and they were just dropping off. Um, they they went to the trouble of framing the stamp for me, and uh, the post office did. It around. Yeah, uh, the the stamp design department in the oh, post that's office. Awesome, yeah, it's very nice of them. Excellent. I get my breath back first as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what I did was I I decided. The best way for me to move forward from, you know, all these different styles I have, to creating, you know, my style, mm-hmm. was really to go out and search the web, and you know, find things that I really like. And I started with things I knew I'd liked. So you know, there was Jim Flora, who I'd already come across, and then there was Klein, David Klein. Um, he did the TWA posters. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the sort of fifties and sixties, yeah. So I really like that. So we put that in in my bucket, and then I you know I realized that um, the arts and crafts movement was something I really liked. Mm-hmm. Um, so much graphic design in that. You know right. William Morris, who was so William Morris was someone I'd been aware of since I was you know, twelve or thirteen, and I, I never saw the relationship between what he did and what i was doing as an illustrator and i started to re-look at all these things and and try to find the relationship between you know what i'd studied um you know the animation i'd done the storytelling within Mm -hmm. that storytelling within comics all these different styles and try to just pull it apart and and think well you know i really like this i really like is, uh, the arts and crafts of patterns. I I really like um, uh, um uh, folk art. You know what is it about folk art that I like? Mm-hmm. And so I, I I started coming up with something that was kind of a mixture of all these different things. Right. Um, it started f- feeling right. You know, it started feeling like you know this was something that uh, represented me. I think the the biggest thing for me personally was this crossover between illustration and graphic design. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing some work as a graphic designer as well as an illustrator. And I'd had so many problems trying to get my illustrations to fit in with my graphic design work. You know, the two of them always felt like they were disjointed. Mm-hmm. They didn't quite click together. It was like I was using two different styles again. I discovered this guy. William Addison Dwiggins. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of this guy? I haven't. Okay, so he, um, he was an illustrator who also uh, worked as a designer and typographer. And in the 1920s, he coined the term graphic design to describe when he was sort of mixing illustration in with his uh, typography. And before that, it was just illustration, you know, artwork. Mm -hmm. And the term graphic designer didn't come into general use until after the Second World War, so mid 1940s. Illustration and graphic design aren't different things. You know, fundamentally, they come from the same place. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, if I start approaching my projects just as illustration, even though they're using typography, then You know, by using hand lettering as opposed to fonts, um, you know, to give up on the sort of grid system that I was using in graphic design, would that make a big difference to my work? And suddenly it just all made sense. You know, it was like suddenly it just felt like one big illustration. And I think that's, you know, all these different things coming together where I started questioning everything. I started questioning what I'd been told and you know rather than following the rules it was like making my own rules right as far as giving sort of advice to people who are also in that position i I think it's just a matter of you know everybody's going to have a a different solution but i think um it should feel natural i i really liked the you know the, the advice i got which was to you know make this collection of all the things you like and then try to take the elements from each different piece you know that bring it all together and make something new out of it right uh, i think that was probably the strongest piece of advice i got yeah.
0: if anyone wants to look up fantastic design astration or illustrative design or whatever you want to call it <laughs> and listen to some really great jazz yes yeah. look up jim flora's work it's just insane yeah. um and I liked what you called William. You, you called William Morris uh, the great granddaddy of graphic design, which I thought was an interesting,
1: yeah, phrasing. I think, it, I, think it is, I think he is. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing with the thing that you have to remember with uh, the Arts and Crafts movement is that the word movement. You know, it was. It wasn't just um, you know a visual art um, mm-hmm. era. It wasn't like um, Art Nouveau or Art Deco. It it was everything. Um, so it was furniture, it was houses, architecture, you know, it was, it was cathedrals, right. and <laughs> you know, uh, it was also you know, book design and uh, lettering um, and illustration and fabrics. And it was kind of everything about it. Right. And it was created as uh, a reaction against Victorian um, modernization, so that the production line. So the example I always give is... You know, if you had like this early production line in Victorian times where they were making chairs, you know, and there'd be several people on that production line and they'd all be putting the chair together. So at the end of the production line, there was a chair exactly the same as the last chair, exactly the same as the last chair. And so the Austin Crafts was, you know, was very much against that. It, they, they thought it should be. You know, hand created. It, it, you know, every piece should be slightly different. It's the quirks, you know, of an individual working on each piece that makes it different. And aesthetically, you know, it's beautiful. You know, there, you know, you, you think, uh, you look at any of the examples from that period, and that's what they tried to push. And it, it's a really great idea, but unfortunately, it was also very expensive, mm-hmm. so they couldn't they couldn't compete with the production line, right. and so. The reason that all fell apart was it, it became exclusive. And so in the end, it was only rich people who could afford it. And, you know, it was very much a socialist movement. So it, it you know, it, it kind of trips itself up in the end. Right. But the ideals are there for it. For sure.
0: You mentioned, um you mentioned folk art as an inspiration and folk art from Central and South America, Asia, Africa, Ireland yeah what is it about the folk aesthetic that's interested you
1: i i like the fact that it's been sort of passed down for generations and generations and you know and everything usually in it has a meaning you know that's quite deep as mm-hmm. well um and i i just i've always just loved looking at it you know whether african masks or romanian fabrics or the celtic designs mm-hmm. which again heavily influenced the arts and crafts movement um the, the one that got picked up on big was the Day of the Dead uh, in Mexico, mm-hmm. which again was just one of the things I liked. But it became, I suppose, my calling card for a while. It's probably 10 years ago now that I first started using that within a range of hot sauces for mixed chili. And that got a, a, a huge amount of attention. And then once once that happened, then I started getting commissioned to do more Day of the Dead stuff and more Day of the Dead stuff. And I was in danger of becoming sort of Day of the Dead man because that seemed to be all I was doing for a while. But it wasn't because that's, I was so passionate about that particular area. It was just the fact that that was the one that became very popular.
0: As an example of that, I hired you
1: to do you a Day of the
0: Dead Activity book. Yeah. yeah. It was, in terms of the year, do you remember the year? 2013, 2012? Yeah. Something along those lines? Yeah, maybe eight, seven or eight years ago, yeah. Yeah. So I was the art director. I wasn't the designer. I had to, someone was working with you on that. It, I mean, it looked great. We, I mean, of course, we loved the way it was looking, and we. I was just, you know... Thinking, my lucky stars that you you even said yes to the project it's like wait he said yes but the frustration from my point of view as the art director was in the fact that we didn't pay you as much as we should have paid you (laughs) and i it was like pulling teeth to add on to the art fee To the point where the publisher was like, well, you know, if he doesn't do it for this much money, then just get somebody else. And I was like, you don't like, he's the right illustrator for this book. You don't like, that's the point here. Like he is the right fit. Mm. We need to make it work because his work will increase the perceived value of this book tenfold. So let's figure out a way to get the money in for the fee. And it was, oh my God, it was so frustrating on my end. And I was so embarrassed when. It was like, hey, here's the fee. I just, I just mm. was like bracing for you to email me or the designer and say, like, what the hell is this?
1: Yeah, and there wasn't any rights with it as well. There was no um, royalty.
0: Yeah, it was work for hire. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but I think the second book we did, which was The Chinese New Year, mm-hmm. I think there was, yeah, that changed then. You, you managed to change that to a royalty.
0: Yeah, I think. Just going back to the folk art thing, I mean, that is certainly. You can see that in your work. Anyone who looks at your work, you can sort of see those those influences, like kind of coming in. My question to you, and this isn't to say that you're doing this, but there is a, a conversation happening for sure about what can be defined as influence and what can be defined as appropriation. Yeah. So when does influence become appropriation?
1: I think there's some very, you know, I think there's, I think you have to start at the extremes of what they are, uh, and you go back to that cultural appropriation thing. Um, and I think that is where you just completely lift it and you don't even care or understand what it's about. And I, I think that happens a lot as you know, you can imagine that happening a lot in stock where you know, we just need a day of the dead face. doesn't matter, you know, um, and for me, I w- I've always been passionate about these things. I'm, I'm sure you remember the, the amount of research that was involved mm-hmm. in putting that book together. Yeah. Um, it's, for me, it's really important to figure out, you know, why is this important? You know, why does the monarch butterfly have such uh, s- uh, symbolism within Day of the Dead? You know, I try to mix in my own style with it. Mm-hmm. So I get a lot of commissions they're based on, for example, I, I did a Korean restaurant mural recently, and they approached me and they said, well, look, we really like your twist on Day of the Dead. Could you do a twist on our Korean folk art? And I said, yeah, I'd love to that. That's a perfect project for me. You know, it's, it's like taking something that already exists, but creating a sort of twist on it while at the same time respecting it. So... Yeah, personally, I've I've not really had very much in the way of negative, as far as that goes, mm-hmm. and you know, some from the very, very start, it was always about yeah, you know, make sure you do if you're going to do this, do it properly, and you know, uh, respect it. And I think that's the main, you know, message. I mm-hmm. I became so sort of one of those illustrators who tended to. Mainly Day of the Dead stuff for outside of Mexico. So I would have worked for some Mexican brands like Modelo, but I would have done sort of branding for the American market as opposed to the Mexican market. Mm-hmm. And I, I relate that to sort of doing stuff for Paddy's Day, but outside Ireland. So, you know, years and years ago, I would have got a lot of uh, St. Patrick's Day stuff to do for Europe say and the way the the europeans or the way anybody outside ireland sees paddy's day is very different to the way we see it here Mm -hmm. you know so it's like there's not much in the way of leprechauns and pots of gold when you when you're actually in ireland but that would be the first thing that people think about outside of ireland and it was always important to me to get that right tone so if i was doing stuff for patrick's day for you know somewhere in france or germany then maybe i would have to do a leprechaun or maybe i would have to do a pot of gold but i wanted to make it more authentic as opposed to you know you know more um all right we can include those things in it but there has to be a sensitivity to it you know so that when an irish person looks at it they they go oh yeah that's that's fine but it's not you know over the top and diddly eye and and that sort of thing mm-hmm. so it's it's kind of understanding the rules and being respectful and creating something that one you know makes the um marketing department happy but also you know respects the uh originality uh, our origin of the subject as well
0: right I usually suggest to a lot of illustrators who who come through the illustration department and i talk to them about their work one of the common bits of advice is like look you're using every color out of the crayon box Mm -hmm. try limiting your palette to just two or three dominant colors a little bit of an accent color which helps lessen the overwhelm of of thinking about like what color is everything going to be well if you just work on with two or three then you can really focus on how those colors work with one another, what the relationships are, mm-hmm. and how and and you put the sort of weight of the piece on its on your, your drawing, your contours, like you were saying, your silhouettes and your value range, which is something that if anyone wants a little bit of a lesson on what the heck I'm talking about, just visit your website <laughs> and you'll see that. You'll see that that's what that's how you are you can't see my hands here, but I'm kind of like piecing a puzzle together. <laughs> That's kind of how you piece things together in your yeah, books, as far as yeah, yeah. how and I'm the, seeing it. One well, of the great
1: advantages illustration has of photography is that you know, if you we were looking at a billboard and it has you know, a street scene on it and the billboard was in a city, then it kind of blends in. You know, it's just a photograph. You're just reusing the colors there and the tones and the textures of everything that's around you. But if you put a limit, you know, an illustration using a limited palette in of the same scene on that billboard, suddenly it jumps out. And so what it does is, you know, your eyes scanning all the time and it's looking for things um, that it's not seen. You know, it's unusual. Mm-hmm. So it would drift past the photograph because it just blends in with the rest of the city. However, you know, an illustration using a limited palette will stop the eyes. And what's that? Guaranteed, they will look back at it and say, well, why, why is that standing out from the rest? What is it? You know, and I think that's what limited palette does, you know, for illustration. It makes it jump out. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, you know, as a tool, I was thinking, you know, for marketing, for, you know, selling, uh, advertising, it just goes pop. For me, that's that's the reason I use that. I want my work to stand out. So, You know, I want it to jump off the page. I, I don't want it to look like it just blends in with everything else. Yeah. Did you
0: ever, did you ever publish that picture book, Understanding Primary Colors and Their Relationships? No, no. Oh my God! Please do. So there's this. So that I, the, one of the things <laughs> I I love about the idea of that book. So there's this. <laughs> this picture book about the colors and their relationships and you think like oh alright yeah, that makes but it's really about actual adult relationships for example you know Red is married to Yellow and then when Yellow goes away to work uh, Uncle Blue shows up and then Red has an affair with Blue how is yeah. that how is that not published am I crazy am I thinking that is that like an unpublishable thing because I think it's
1: brilliant I, I don't think it's no I, I really love it I, I love the idea of it um the problem is that that whole idea, which is, I think it's 12 pitches, 12 or 13 pitches, mm-hmm. came to me as just one chunk of an idea. And I'm not a writer. I can't. You know, I've, I've had three publishers interested in it, but they've all said it's too short. It needs to be longer. Um, and I don't know how to do that. I keep looking at it and my brain just grinds to a halt. It just refuses to go beyond oh my God. the twelve or thirteen pages. Um,
0: we gotta make it. Happen. And
1: it's just yeah, it's just it's just yeah. You know, it works on so many levels as, as far as you know the, exactly. the colors yeah. and, and everything. So uh-huh. one day, one day, I'll right. get that together. I think I just need to find the right partner to do it. It's, right. I don't think it's it can't be a solo project. All
0: right, please do. And you have buyer, you have one buyer in me for sure, <laughs> and I suspect you'll have many more. So I want to tie this up as much as I uh, love chatting with you about art and color theory and art history and all that fun stuff, uh, football. (laughs) And I usually like ending by asking my guest for, you know, one last bit of advice for the person who's listening in on this conversation. And your one last bit of advice that I've read was buy yourself a comfortable chair because you're going to be sitting in it for a very long time. Okay, so what's your second uh, last bit of advice for the illustrators and everyone else listening in on this?
1: The chair used to be my favorite bit of advice to give because it's a real practical one. Um, it's a very but good one. my my favorite piece of advice is not to take any advice seriously <laughs> apart from this piece of advice. and i I've never found another piece of advice that actually gets to the point of it more than that this particular one and the point of it is i i i look back on my career and i was always one of those who would soak up anything that you know other people who i admired told me and i i look back and and every now and again i find little pieces of of advice that have stuck with me that actually shouldn't have and and um, you know i'm i can't think of any examples at this minute but there would be ways i draw things or the way i think about drawing things or you know overall idea on something and it would just be a piece of advice that somebody gave me a long time ago who was probably referring to something more specific than my whole career if you know what i mean yeah um and so i kind of i yeah I, I i offer this advice is that You know any advice you're given try to examine why you're being given it and try to remember that you know this could just be temporary advice and it could just be advice for the one thing you're working on so and then it it may be coming from somebody that has you know a different idea of what, what it is you're trying to achieve so i always question the advice you're given you know accept it but question it um So I think I think that's
0: that's the best piece of advice you can get to learn more about Steve visit stevesimpson.com if you enjoyed our conversation please share it with your friends subscribe to the podcast and provide a positive rating and review become a patron by visiting patreon.com forward slash illustration DEPT in return you'll receive a gift a discount code and access to short episodes we're calling extra credit. This podcast is produced by the Illustration Department, a global leader in online education for illustrators. Visit us at illustrationdept.com for class offerings, testimonials, the alumni showcase, the podcast show notes, our new forum, the bookshop, and more. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.